please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. It doesn't take long after entering the workforce to discover that there is a huge difference between what you learned in class or in your preparations in the school that you went to to prepare for your job and then what's actually required of you in real life. Put another way, in most professions there's a big gap between theory and practice. Just ask a carpenter or a teacher or a cop. Ask a doctor, ask a mother. And this gap, this theory-practice gap, is a special problem for Christians. At least with our jobs, it seems that we can steadily advance and close the gap over time. But closing the gap as a Christian in your faith can be quite difficult. I think it's hard to close this theory-practice gap because many of us, myself included, we lack perseverance, the endurance, the strength to keep pressing on when it seems like we're making no progress at all. Another reason I think we struggle to close this gap in our faith is that the work, in this case, the work that's required calls us to admit our own helplessness and even our failure, admit to ourselves and God And to be honest, our pride usually gets in the way. And finally, I think the gap, the theory practice gap in the workplace is helped by people whose examples we can follow, but sometimes we feel that the examples are lacking in the realm of faith. In the workplace, a mentor or a guide, a buddy can show you the ropes, speak with the voice of experience, But in the faith, these examples are not as common as they should be. Whatever the reason, whether it's lacking perseverance, personal pride, or the few examples available, this gap is real. It's also, I think, a measure how big this gap is. It's a measure of your Christian maturity. What do we do? You could do far worse than study, really study the book of Psalms. It's because in the book of Psalms, God has provided not just a statement of truth, but truth as it is expressed by imperfect people who are learning on the job how to live out their lives before the Lord in a difficult world. Voss explains that the Psalms are a subjective response to objective revelation. It's our personal response a poetic, personal response to the truth of God as it hits us. In this way, I think the Psalms show how we may deeply engage God's truth personally, which will help narrow the gap between your religious theory and your religious life. And in today's Psalm especially, we see this, Psalm 32. Because David surely, before he wrote Psalm 32, believed in the forgiveness of sins. But Psalm 32 gives us a bit of a a, a narrative, a snapshot of 
how he actually came to understand it in a personal way. Most likely in the background of Psalm 32 is David's sin of adultery and murder. But whatever your struggle might be, David's wise, real-life instruction and example will surely help you close down the gap between what you say you believe and how you actually live. Speaking for myself, I've found over the years of my walk with the Lord that I return again and again and again to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 gives me strength to be real with God and with others about my sin. Psalm 32 has shown me so many times what it means to, to live a wise and humble, repentant life. And Psalm 32 calls me, even when I don't feel like it, calls me to rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. If these sorts of struggles or difficulties appeal to you or resonate with your heart this morning, then this morning's psalm is for you. It's because it's all about the restoration of a sinner. That's the title of my sermon this morning, The Restoration of a Sinner. I want to show you three truths about the restoration of a sinner. One, the restoration of this specific sinner, David, it applies to everyone. Two, it involves you personally, just as it did him. And three, it encourages others. So let's begin our discovery this morning of a restoration of the sinner by reading the word and seeing what God has to teach us. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will, <clears throat> I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord, please help us now as we have heard your word read. May its explanation, indeed its proclamation, be both challenging and encouraging to us. I pray, Lord, that none of us would rest easy, if by that we mean easy in our own goodness, but that we would rest in you and you alone, and that your gospel, your word preached, would help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The restoration of a sinner applies to everyone. This is the first truth of Psalm 32. Now, it's written by David. It's about David's own story. He's in the first person here in verses 3, 4, and 5, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and so forth. But I'm saying at the outset that we need to read this not just as David's prayer, but as a prayer that is about everyone's restoration. I get this from verse 2 because it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word in Hebrew for man is actually Adam or Adam. And so by choosing this word, we are, we are drawn to the point that in Adam all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are defined by sin. There's not one person you'll meet today who is not in Adam, a fallen sinner in need of a Savior. I believe this suggests that this psalm, this poem about the restoration of one sinner, David, in fact applies to the entire race of humanity. There's a claim in the beginning of the psalm that says this is for everyone. You can also see it in the way that the truths are expressed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, verse 1, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These are stated as truisms of, of uh, proverbs of life. You, you want to know what the good life looks like, the, the asheritic life, the, the happy life, the well-founded life, the life of well-being, the life of shalom. Here it is. It doesn't matter who you are, man, woman, boy, or girl. I'm told that Psalm 32 was a favorite of St. Augustine. He once said that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And so we see David beginning his poem by inviting you to identify as a sinner. He's saying, this isn't just a story about my life. I'm sharing a story about everyone's life. Even the way that sin is described in verses 1 and 2 shows it applies to everyone. We have the word transgression. We have the word iniquity. We have the word sin. Transgression means tearing away from God. This kind of sin destroys God's perfect pattern for your life. Sin is the word hata, which means to deviate from what pleases God and I, I imagine this, this way of thinking about sin says that there's a, there's a map or a path for your life, and this hata sin says, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go off-roading and follow my own path. The third sort of sin, iniquity here, is the word ayon, which means a perversion or a mutation of God's plan. So whether you're destroying God's plan, whether you're deviating from God's plan, or mutating God's plan. We see in every sense, every sort of sin is represented in these two verses. But we also see in these two verses not only every kind of sin, but all kinds of forgiveness. Sin is taken away, it says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Literally there, the word is to lift up and carry away. I imagine a heavy load that's lifted off of the shoulders 
or a rash, an itch, or a scab that's removed from the body. I imagine a, a, a sword hanging over the neck of a condemned criminal and that sword being removed. I imagine a, a cup of poison being pressed to the lips and that cup being taken away. Sin is forgiven, it is lifted away, but it is also covered, it says in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You know, the Bible says that God's eyes are so pure, are so holy, that he is unable to look upon evil, which means that for a sinner to come into the presence of God is impossible. It's, it's, it's a divine human impossibility. Sin must be covered in order for a sinner to be in the presence of God. It requires a kind of invisibility cloak, if you're a Harry Potter fan, that even, even the, the greatest wizard cannot penetrate. Sin must be covered like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was covered with something called the Hilasterion, the mercy seat. The cherubim had wings that were covering the Ark. Sin must be covered, if you can imagine this, sin must be covered as completely and fully as the, the Egyptians were covered in the Red Sea as they were pursuing God's people, Israel, in the desert. And as they crossed into the Red Sea, God's people crossed on dry ground and the Red Sea covered the Egyptians and buried them in God's judgment. Sin is lifted, sin is covered, but then sin is uh, in the negative here, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in verse 2. So sin is lifted, sin is covered, and sin is not counted it is not counted. It is not imputed according to verse 2. This kind of forgiveness regards your sin as a debt which has been canceled or paid in full. Paul says, but your sins are not counted against you in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against them. So I'm saying that Psalm 32 teaches the restoration not just of a sinner, but it applies to everyone. His sin applies to everyone. Everyone's sin is described here. And every possible kind of forgiveness or restoration is described here the lifting up and carrying away of sin, the covering of sin, and the not counting of sin. No matter what kind of sin you have, there is a restoration for you. Is your sin weighing you down? God lifts it off of your shoulders and carries it away and places it on the shoulders of His Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you busy trying to cover your own sin, to fix your life, to make it up, to make it look good? No need. The forgiveness that you need, God covers it fully and completely. Are you busy counting the sheets, the, the, the good deeds and the bad deeds, the things you've done and the things you haven't done and making sure that the good outweigh the bad? You can stop counting because the forgiveness that is offered here is that your sins are not counted against you. 
They are not imputed to your record. God has given us this psalm so that what David experienced, David the murderer, David the adulterer, David's restoration is the restoration of everyone. But it also applies to you personally, just as it applied to him. We see David in des- describing, beginning in verse 3, his own journey, his own personal journey. Likewise, the restoration of any sinner needs to find its place in your personal journey. You know, s- some of you are really good sinners. Others of you, not so much. Some of you have testimonies that if we were to, to publish them, we might need to, you know, use a black marker to kind of cover up some of that stuff. Others of you, maybe you've never known a day apart from Christ in your life. Whatever it is, though, the restoration of a sinner has to be personal. I see three stages to David's personal journey here. In the first stage, in verse 3, he's silent about his sin. This involves David lying and covering up his sin to God. He was in denial about his sin, and so the text says that he was keeping silent about it. And he was deceiving himself about it. Verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But, it says, I kept silent. So we're, in, we're intended to read verse 2 and verse 3 together. Though David tried to silence the conversation God wanted to have with him, David, hello, we need to talk, you and me. There was a voice that David could not silence. You see, when I kept silent, David wasn't silent altogether. He was just silent about the truth of his sin to God. But when you're silent about the truth of your sin to God, you still speak, your mind speaks, the truth still leaks in around and under and through the cracks in the doorway and the windows. And so he's groaning all day long, which is loud, even while he is silent about his sin. I picture a a cup filled with water that's overflowing under the tap. And just like that cup can only hold so much before the water spills down over the side and onto your hand and into the sink, so also when you're silent about your sin, there's only so much that you can hold and it comes out. And for David, it was cries of agony and moans and groans of spiritual pain. It was so painful to him that it's described here in verse 3 as his bones themselves wasting away. You think of the if you're in the trades, you can think of the, the steel beams of a building or the, the two-by-fours that form the frame of a wall. And the bones are like the frame of a human being, just like the two-by-fours are the frame of a wall. And his bones were waxing old, is what the King James says. They were, they were turning into dust inside of him. Now, was he physically sick because of his sin? I think it's very well possible. Read 1 Corinthians 11. But more to the point, he felt like he was dissolving. His very frame of his body was dissolving. The foundation of his life was crumbling. Such a vivid way of portraying in this stage 
a growing spiritual weakness that goes along with the unhealthy bottling up of one's evil within the soul rather than speaking freely to God about your sin. It's personal. In the second stage, we see God's heavy hand in verse 4. Day and night, David says, your hand, the hand of the Lord, was heavy upon me. What a graphic way to, to imagine oneself. The hand of God, what could be more loving, more gracious of the very hand of your heavenly Father? He feeds us. He cares for us. He is kind to us. He is gentle and gracious to us. But here the hand of God is weighing upon David like a load of bricks. And it's creating a sleepless condition at night and a restless condition by day. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. The pressure of this situation, he's unwilling to yield to God. So this, this pressure of his soul increases in his mind and he has no relief and no rest and no restoration, not yet. This phrase that my strength is dried up as the heat of summer speaks to the, the, the way in which a, a plant or an animal in, in the desert, in a drought, slowly loses moisture through the skin. And not talking honestly with God was like an evaporation, spiritual evaporation for David. It's personal. Stage three, the final stage of his personal journey of restoration involves the immediate release of all of this pressure and all of this pain. I acknowledged my sin to you, verse 5, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's journey has come to an end, or almost. The moment he confesses his sin to God, he is forgiven. He doesn't need to do anything else. He doesn't need to pay his tithes, go to church, talk to the pastor. David is free from his burden when he talks to God. And just like David had to go through it and couldn't just sweep it under the rug, Actually, practically, David had to wrestle with the reality that he did it, that he was a sinner. If you are going to be restored, you also have to become personally involved. You've got to get down into the details and get into the specifics with God and possibly with other people in your life. So the restoration of a sinner, David, applies to everyone. It involves his own personal story, and it must involve yours as well. And each of our journeys will look different. But finally, no matter what your journey looks like, when a sinner is restored, and when David himself was restored from his sin, it enabled and allowed him to become an encouragement to others. This is my third point. The restoration of a sinner encourages others 
And the second half of the psalm is all taken up with this encouragement. Therefore, the, the advice that David gives, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So the encouragement to others is an, appeal to, an, an explicit appeal to everyone who is godly. Those who love God and who want the love of God are to, are to pray to God at the right time. So the encouragement to others, first of all, is an encouragement to pray. David had to learn to talk to God, and now that he's learned this lesson, he wants to encourage others to do the same. And notice that there's a time for prayer. There's a right time for prayer. Let everyone who is godly pray to you at a time when you may be found, literally a time of finding. When will you find the Lord in prayer? Have you ever prayed to God and found him not listening or seemingly not listening? There is a time for prayer. David is encouraging, challenging, warning others to pray at the right time. And then this, the second encouragement here in verses 8 and 9, be not, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I believe this is most likely the voice of God here in answer to David's prayer. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then this warning, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So David had to learn to walk in the wisdom of God, that's verse 8, rather than harsher methods of correction, which is verse 9. You see, sin presents an opportunity for us. There is an easy way, which is to yield to the wisdom of God and the Scriptures, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the still small voice, the prompting. That's the way out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's no temptation which has seized you except that which is common to man. And when you're tempted, the Lord will provide what? A way out. I call it, it's the last exit on the Jersey Turnpike before you hit the bridge. That's an expensive toll. The encouragement to others is to pray. The encouragement to others is to walk in the wisdom of God rather than harsher measures. And the final encouragement in verses 10 and 11 is to prize or value the love of God above all else. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Prize the love of God above all else. Well, this sermon series we're doing this fall is called The Psalms of My Life. I borrowed that title from a book written by a godly man who went to be with the Lord many years ago. His name is Joe Bailey. Joe is the father of my pastor and mentor, and he wrote a book called Psalms of My Life. Now, these are a selection of Joe's heartfelt poems that he wrote at various points in his life, times of crisis, times of celebration, and to our point this morning, times of restoration or renewal. And so since this morning's sermon is about the restoration of a sinner, I'm going to read a poem that Joe wrote 
in which he prayerfully asks God to restore to him the kind of godly life that only God can give. Here's the poem. A psalm of single-mindedness. Lord of reality, make me real, not plastic, synthetic, pretend phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list, but to pray. Not agonized to find your will, but to obey what I already know, to argue theories of inspiration, but to submit to your word. I don't want to explain the difference between eros and philos and agape, but to love. I don't want to sing as if I mean it. I want to mean it. I don't want to tell it like it is. I want to be it like you want it. I don't want to think another needs me, but I need him, else I'm not complete. I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it, to have to always be right, but to admit it when I'm wrong. I don't want to be a census taker, but an obstetrician, nor an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I don't want to be insensitive, but to hurt where other people hurt, nor to say, I know how you feel, but to say, God knows, and I'll try if you're patient with me, and meanwhile, I'll be quiet. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others, but to mean everything I say, including this. In conclusion, the gap between our theory and practice, as you see in this poem, is one which is going to continue your whole earthly life. I mentioned St. Augustine earlier. This was his favorite psalm. And I'm told by historians that this great man of God had Psalm 32 over his bed as he was lying and dying and about to leave this life. And it may have been that he actually quoted Psalm 32 as his last living words in this life. What an encouragement. The great man of God, the father of the church, St. Augustine himself, was reading in his last moments of life the prayer of a restoration of a sinner. If Augustine needed to be reminded that he was a sinner in need of God's grace, well, I definitely need that, and you do too. So we need to pray Psalm 32. We need to read it. We need to sing it with confidence, knowing that our greatest life, our most wholesome, happiest, best life, The life that can be lived by a sinner is one in which you know, you know for sure that your sins are forgiven in Christ. But this requires you to admit your need for restoration, to unbottle, to unstopper your heart to God and talk to Him. Be honest with Him, not just in your complaints as we've been learning, but in your confession. And in that confession, in speaking to God, you'll see the gap between your theory and your practice you'll see it shrink down. In other words, the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins will begin to work its way into your life and you'll begin to live like a forgiven sinner, humbly dependent on the grace of God in Jesus Christ every single day. And the time of finding that sort of restoration, the time is now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, I thank you, Lord, that it is a word that I need, that I have the privilege of having fed 
and feasted upon your word to share it with your people. How I pray, Lord, that, that the preacher will disappear and that Christ will speak to his people, will have spoken. How I pray, Lord, that you would continue to narrow that gap in my life and in each one of our lives. But Lord, that's hard work. It's the work of a lifetime. So may we indeed be, be patient with one another and may we continue to welcome others into this community of Christians who also are seeking the forgiveness of sins that only you can grant. We have found that all of our efforts to cover and to carry away our sin have been futile and that only it only can be done through the Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.